All right, well, let's turn to John in the fourth chapter, John chapter 4. And as you're turning, I will mention that on the last Sunday of May, we do plan to have a baptism. And at this point, we have one that has come and requested baptism. If there are others that would like to be baptized, would you say something to me or to one of the elders? And we'd be happy to talk with you about that matter. In John chapter 4, we have a remarkable scene where Jesus evangelizes the woman at the well. And last week, we worked with the first 15 verses, but it really will be to our benefit to begin reading with verse 1 and to try to recover the flow of the passage. So John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
But the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Several years ago, I was seated in the last row of an Airbus 319 flying from Baltimore to Denver. The flight was full except the seat to my right. At the last minute, a 30-something, clean-cut, intelligent-looking man came hustling down the aisle. I guess that he was from India. And of course, there being only one seat open, he took the seat next to me. As we took off, I engaged him in conversation, and I found him to be quite articulate and extremely intelligent. He graduated from an elite Indian university. He came to the United States for graduate school, and after working for Microsoft, he launched his own company involving medical technologies and computer technologies and the interface between the two. Sounds like Brother Joseph, (laughs) except he was very intelligent. This man was on the verge of enormous success. In fact, he was telling me about all the venture capitalists that he had managed to get involved in investing in this company. But then I shifted the conversation to religion, and he exclaimed, I worship Lakshmi, who was the Hindu goddess of wealth. And my thought was, Really? How could a technologically savvy, highly educated modern man worship this antiquated tribal deity? But Lakshmi was making him very wealthy, or so he thought. So inquiring further, I asked him, can Lakshmi be of any assistance to you if this plane suddenly plummets to the ground and none of us make it out alive? And he said, well, I don't suppose she could. I never thought about that before, he said. Well, isn't that a problem, I said. All the money in the world isn't going to do you any good if you're dead. And so I proceeded to share my Christian faith with him, and I showed him how he could have eternal life beyond a plane crash or beyond death. And without a moment's hesitation, he responded, I will believe this. I will believe Jesus. I need to believe this. I mean, no hesitation. And that is not necessarily an uncommon response from a Hindu who already believes in a whole pantheon of gods. Just add one more God. I mean, why not? Who wouldn't want eternal life? But the question is eternal life on whose terms? That's the question that we have to press upon people. I explained to my seatmate that belief in Jesus would in fact require him to abandon Lakshmi. You must accept Jesus and Jesus alone. And trusting Jesus, my friend, does not guarantee you instantaneous wealth. And the man's whole countenance just changed. Wealth was his true God. Avarice was his defining vice. 
Now, if I was a prosperity gospel preacher, I would have encouraged him to just bow his head and pray the sinner's prayer right there in the moment, right? I would have had another convert for the kingdom and more bragging rights about people that had brought the Christ. I would baptize him and encourage him to start giving to my church and promise him that God would greatly return on his tithe. You really can't outgive God. Just, just let God prosper you now. That's the prosperity gospel, but I didn't do that. The man had a big problem. The same problem at its root that the Samaritan woman had. A defining sin that had to be dealt with decisively. I am very interested this morning in the abrupt transition between verses 15 and 16. Understanding this transition really is crucial to successful evangelism. Look at at this very abrupt transition. Are you ready for this? Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, isn't this the point where we just introduce the sinner's prayer? I mean, who wouldn't want an everlasting spring of water or an everlasting spring of wealth? Just bow your head and repeat after me, right? Wrong. Jesus abruptly took that whole conversation and turned it in an entirely different direction. Go call your husband. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. My seatmate's defining vice was his covetous heart. This woman's defining vice was her sexual promiscuity. Both had an enormous sin problem that had to be dealt with before they could truly embrace Christ. One made an idol of money, the other made an idol of relationships. And neither one was ready to receive eternal life. Again, the transition between verses 15 and 16 really is crucial. Jesus turned her request for the water of life to a focus on her divorce and immorality. Friends, before we encourage people to receive the gift of eternal life, we need to compel them to acknowledge their sin. That's what Jesus is doing. The prosperity gospel, which is rampant in our country and closely intertwined with Christian nationalism, says, well, just ignore your sin problem. Just, just come on to God for your blessing. Today's leading prosperity gospel preacher is a man named Joel Osteen. Before Osteen, the most influential prosperity gospel preacher was a man named Norman Vincent Peale. He was the father of the movement a very influential pastor in New York City. Peel's book, The Power of Positive Thinking, outlines 10 rules for success. Here is rule number one. Staple indelibly on your mind a mental picture of yourself succeeding. 
hold this picture tenaciously and always refer to it no matter how badly things seem to be going at the moment. And here are several other rules. Think a positive thought to drown out a negative thought. Repeat, if God be for us, who can be against us ten times every day? Repeat, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me ten times every day. Develop a strong self-respect. Believe that you receive power from God. Friends, you want power from God? It's just yours. It's like everlasting water. It's yours. Just affirm yourself. God is a genie in a bottle just waiting to grant you your wishes. But what about your sin? What about your greed? What about your five husbands and your current lover? There's nothing positive about our sin, so Peel ignores it. The power of positive thinking ignores verse 16. Go call your husband. Let's talk about your failed relationships. Jesus forces this woman to reflect on her greatest sin. Jesus turned the rich young ruler's attention to his heart, which was full of pride in his own law-keeping. This is how Jesus evangelizes people. He turns them to their sin. Rabbinic opinion disapproved of more than three marriages for a male in the first century, that a woman would have five marriages, and is even now living in immorality was an enormous scandal. And that's precisely where Jesus turned her attention. Now, I'm going to use an illustration this morning that might prove controversial. Because it does involve a prominent politician, former President Donald Trump. But I do feel a need to protect our church. I'm not commenting this morning on any of Trump's political decisions or positions, some of which I agree with. And I'm actually not going to try to wade into politics. I try to keep that out of the pulpit. Nor am I endorsing the current administration by identifying a problem in Mr. Trump's thinking. I'm not doing any of that, all right? So keep the politics out of it. But the fact is, Mr. Trump has become a celebrated figure in Christian nationalism. And there are many evangelical Trump supporters who tend to conflate American prosperity with the gospel. You understand that? American prosperity, health and wealth, with the gospel. And if Trumpism is a synonym for American prosperity then Trump's support equates to standing up for the gospel. And that is how many evangelicals think today. But in my estimation, this is a dangerous assumption because what America needs most is a savior from her sins, not a politician who promises prosperity. We have a sin problem in our country. Now, Norman Vincent Peale was influential in the lives of several presidents. He was a close friend of President Nixon. And as pastor of the Marble Collegiate Church in New York, he was the pastor of Fred and Mary Trump, 
and also the young Donald Trump. Donald Trump and his sisters were married in the Marble Collegiate Church. In 2016, Donald Trump stated, quote, I remember Peel's sermons. You could listen to him all day long, and when you left the church, you were disappointed it was over. He was the greatest guy. He also referred to Peel as, quote, one of the greatest speakers I've ever heard. But I wonder, did Peel's prosperity gospel influence Mr. Trump? On January 17, 2016, presidential candidate Trump was interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN concerning his relationship with God. Tapper inquired, quote, you said you've never asked God for forgiveness. Do you regret making that remark? No, Trump responded, quote, I have a great relationship with God. I have a great relationship with the evangelicals. In fact, nationwide, I'm up by a lot. I'm leading everybody. But I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. I live a very different life than probably a lot of people would think. I have a very great relationship with God. And I have a very great relationship with evangelicals. And I think that's why I'm doing so well with Iowa. Well, friends, is that the power of positive thinking? Don't don't focus on your sin. God is going to bless you. Tapper interjects, quote, when you say that you try to do good, that sounds very different from decades of tabloids and media coverage in New York in which some of your wilder escapades were not. Trump breaks in. Well, I'm talking about over the last number of years, and you know I'm leading a very good life. I try to lead a good life, and I have. And frankly, the reason I'm doing so well in Iowa and leading the polls, including the CNN poll where I'm 33 to 20 in Iowa. Appearing in a later interview, candidate Trump references Peel's The Power of Positive Thinking, which is a great book, he says. Trump was then asked, quote, Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? After a long pause in which Trump pursed his lips while the audience roared with laughter, Trump responded, here's the question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? Quote, he said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. And Trump continued, Now, when we go in church and I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker, I guess it's a form of asking forgiveness, and do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed, okay? Well, I use this example because Mr. Trump's statements in these interviews actually represent the thinking of millions of Americans. Norman Vincent Peale, Joel Osteen, Mr. Trump, and millions of Americans would, like, would, would just stop the interview right there with verse 15, right? Just stop the interview right there. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Just pass around the holy water, right? 
pass around the communion wine, pass around the crackers, and we'll all be nice and cleansed regardless of whether we repent and acknowledge our sins in the sight of a holy God. Just stop with verse 15. But Jesus, friends, does not stop with verse 15. Jesus Christ would say to Mr. Trump, go call your wives and go call the women whom you brag about sexually assaulting. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the woman's problem. Go call your husband and come here. And friends, Jesus Christ would say the same thing to Mr. Biden. Quit sidestepping your immoral support for abortion, for political expediency while pretending to be a good Christian. Are we going to embrace Jesus' model of evangelism? Friends, you must bring your sin to the foot of the cross. Republicans, Democrats, independents, Americans, bring your immorality, your cheating, lying, theft, murder, covetousness, idolatry, avarice, pride, pornography, your licentiousness. Bring it all to the foot of the cross. Bring your sin, bring your guilt, bring your condemnation. You've got to bring all that to Jesus. Go call your husband. Forget about your prosperity for a moment. And let's deal with your sin. Friends, when sharing the gospel, never ever be afraid to really press the matter of the person's sin. That's what America needs to hear. The transition between verses 15 and 16 really needs to be crucial to our understanding of how we present the gospel. Now moving on, let's notice the woman's response. Her response is slightly encouraging, although far from adequate. She does not repent immediately. In fact, her instinctive response is to evade the issue of her infidelity. But she at least recognizes something unusual about Jesus. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's a pretty good inference based on Jesus' knowledge of her sin. And the Greek grammar also allows that she might be calling Jesus the prophet. The Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch. And based on the reading of Deuteronomy, they believed in a coming great future prophet. Moses predicted, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They were looking for a coming prophet, a second Moses to come. And the woman recognizes, well, Jesus might very well be that prophet. And so she is willing to continue the dialogue, even though she is reticent to really discuss her sin. And this, frankly, is a normal response. When people come under conviction of sin, they don't always want to talk about their sin, but they will dance around the issue by talking theology. And so she raises the issue of the proper place of worship in verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
And I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with someone like this. You discuss with someone the need for a solution to his or her sin. And that person is more than willing to talk religion. But let's just change the discussion a bit. Let's not talk about my marriage problems. Let's talk apologetics. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about temples. Let's talk about where you should go for worship. And the woman is here referencing a perennial problem. The Samaritans refused to venture south to the temple in Jerusalem. For many years, they had their own rival temple at a place called Mount Gerizim, and that's doubtless the mountain that the woman was referring to. It was at Shechem, under the shadow of Gerizim, where Abraham built an altar after coming into the Promised Land. It's a very famous site for the Samaritans. Also in the days of Joshua, it was at Gerizim that the blessings of God on the people were to be shouted aloud. And the Samaritan temple at Gerizim had earlier been destroyed by John Hyrcanus. But Samaritans in Jesus' day nevertheless continued to venerate the spot. It was to them a very sacred location. Now Jesus' response is intriguing. On the one hand, he acknowledges in verse 22 the superiority of Jewish tradition, the tradition of worshiping in Jerusalem. Now, he does not refer to Herod's temple directly, but he does acknowledge that salvation comes from the Jews. And of course, the center of the Jewish worship is the Jewish temple. And Jesus, of course, was referencing himself as the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Salvation came through the line of Jewish kings, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. Salvation comes through the Jews. But strictly speaking, Jesus' response is not a full endorsement of the temple in Jerusalem. Far from it. In fact, Jesus turns her attention away from both Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim. Yes, salvation comes for the Jews, but wait a minute, don't look to Jerusalem, don't look to Mount Gerizim. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that's Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Friends, it was never God's intent to be worshipped in a permanent building located up on top of a mountain. Jesus is proposing a whole new way of worshipping the Father. This is actually the second time in John's Gospel where Jesus makes an important observation about the temple. In chapter 2, Jesus had come down south out of Galilee to Jerusalem for Passover. And there he cleansed the temple. And the Jews, of course, were indignant. And John records what happened next. Let me read it to you. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? That's cleansing the temple. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, this Jerusalem temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? The Jerusalem temple, right? Or maybe not. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Clearly, what Jesus was doing all the way back in John chapter 2 was diverting their attention away from the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the Jerusalem temple will be completely destroyed, every last stone, in 70 A.D. There was, however, a temple that would never be destroyed. It would suddenly be raised again from the grave in three days. And that's where Jesus was turning their attention, the new place of worship. You are not going to worship in Jerusalem and you are not going to worship at Mount Gerizim, well then where will we worship? Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Well, what does Jesus mean when He says the hour is coming and is now here? This sounds rather like that already not yet language that we have encountered frequently, and that's it precisely. Jesus came to revolutionize the way that we think about worship. Jesus came to topple the physical temple on the top of a mountain and to replace it with a much more accessible means of worship. And Jesus, as the instrument of that transition, is both here now, all right? He's here talking with the woman. The hour is coming and is now here. He's talking with her, but he's also soon bringing about this coming age of the spirit of Pentecost and the launch in the church age. The hour is both already here and the hour is coming because Jesus, the agent of that transition from temple worship to worshiping God through the incarnation, has arrived. Now let's think also about these two terms in verse 23, spirit and truth. Let's read the verse again. Jesus says to her, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and truth. The fact is, all through human history, people have been making pilgrimages to holy places for worship. Our planet is adorned with monasteries and temples perched up on high mountain peaks. Those rocky enclaves give people a sense of mystery and serenity when worshiping God. Mount Athos in Greece is honeycombed with monasteries. It's one of the most venerated sites in Greek Orthodoxy. Lhasa in Tibet is a traditional home of the Dalai Lama. It's considered one of the most holy places in all the world. And it certainly is true that going up on top of a mountain can give you a sense of eternity. It can sort of reorient your perspective on the ephemeral business of life. But Jesus' claims are offering us something rather different. Jesus says there's a whole new way of worship coming, and it doesn't involve geography. You don't have to go to the temple. There is no single central sanctuary purchased up on a mountain 
Worship will be mediated, will not be mediated through a whole tribe of Levites and priests that are ascending up from the Temple Mount. Worship will be mediated through the Spirit. You will worship in the Spirit. And here's the beautiful thing about the Spirit. He is omnipresent. The Spirit is everywhere. David says, there's just nowhere you can go anywhere on planet Earth and get away from the Spirit. And friends, when we think about the Spirit being omnipresent, don't think of Him as being stretched really thinly through space. All right, as if the bigger the space, the smaller the quantity of the Spirit. He's not getting stretched really thinly, all right? Not at all. The Spirit is fully present, fully potent, omnipotent, fully potent in every little particle of space. He is entirely here, and He's entirely there, and He's entirely over there. Wherever you go, the Spirit is there in His entirety. He is omnipotent and He is omnipresent. And to worship God in spirit is to go anywhere and worship God. And notice in verse 24 that God is a spirit. Now we think of God, the Holy Spirit, as a spirit because He is. But friends, God the Father is equally a spirit. Jesus has a body. God the Father does not. God the Father as Spirit is fully present in all space, equally and fully potent, omnipotent in every space. We can worship God and the Spirit anywhere and everywhere. Now, there's something special, of course, about gathering together with other believers in church, but your worship ought to follow you all through the week. You can worship God in your job. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Now, let's observe Jesus' second clarification. And Jesus emphasizes not only spirit, but truth. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit, get this, and truth. And friends, Christianity is not merely a religion about how I feel. It's not just about my emotions, as important as they are. If that were the case, we should all just run out and purchase a copy of The Power of Positive Thinking. Friends, worship, worship involves truth. God is as much to be worshipped with the mind as with the heart, as with the affections. And friends, can I just say it this way? Part of worshiping God is to be tedious and exacting in the way that you think about God. And sometimes I think we try to overcorrect by dismissing the mind for the heart. Right? We say, well, you know, it's all intellectual. Just focus on the heart. No, no, no. All right? Don't focus so exclusively on the heart you forget about the mind. It's really both. And God is to be worshipped with the mind as well as with the heart. Theological precision is essential to true worship. 
That is why we labor at things like our church's doctrinal statement. It was not haphazardly thrown together at the last minute. In fact, we tapped into centuries of theological development when we drafted that statement. We looked at numerous other confessions of faith that spirit-filled men have articulated through the centuries, going all the way back to the earliest days of the church. That's how far back we went. And our elders sat around a table and worked through our doctrinal statement line by line by line, and word by word by word. And we actually paid two theologians to carefully work through it. And then we worked through every article line by line with the whole church family on a series of Wednesday nights. Why did we do all that? It's because truth matters. We worship in truth. An enormous part of our worship involves us, friends, just adjusting our improper thinking about the world so that we start thinking correctly and biblically about the world. The Bible refers to us renewing the mind. God is to be worshipped with the mind as well as the heart. And I am not kidding when I say that there are many, many professing Christians who would just pack out a stadium to hear prosperity gospel preaching, but simply would just not put up with a Sunday morning service like we have here. That's true. The main focus of our service involves us looking at the text of the Bible and trying to figure out what it says so that we can think and live responsibly. This is, this is our worship. I hope you don't think the worship sort of ends, you know, when the songs are done, all right? Worship really is a matter of you thinking correctly, worshiping in truth. And there are any number of Christians who prefer an hour-long concert and a five-minute sermonette. If you get up to six minutes, it's just too long. And friends, that's just, that's just not our philosophy. God is to be worshipped with the mind. And I'm not excluding the emotions of the heart. But in this case, Jesus is talking about truth. Truth matters. And it's in our minds that we really come to understand truth. Now, in conclusion, let's observe what happens in this conversation with the woman at the well. And we will come back to this next week and give it some more attention. Initially, she turned the conversation away from a focus on her own sin. She introduced a perennial religious debate about the proper place of worship, Jerusalem or Gerizim. And Jesus rather skillfully transcends that whole debate. Jesus definitely turned the discussion towards the new and future way of worshiping God. Let's not talk about Jerusalem. Let's not talk about Gerizim. Let's talk about the future. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Because when you talk with a Jew or a Samaritan about the future, one word comes to mind. Messiah. Messiah. When the Jews talk about their future, when the Samaritans talk about their future, it's all about the coming Messiah. And notice how Jesus' skill just piqued her interest. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
He was called Christ. If you want to talk about the future, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And that's where the discussion has to go. Who is the Messiah? We can talk about eternal life. Wouldn't you all like to have that? But don't stop with the prosperity gospel. Let's talk about your sin problem, and then let's talk about the true Messiah. That's how Jesus evangelizes. And who is this true Messiah? Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, did this woman believe? Apparently, yes. Let's just glance ahead to verse 39. We'll come back here next week. Verse 39 tells us, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more, many more, many more in addition to who? In addition to the Samaritan woman. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And friends, this woman doubtless had a terrible reputation around town. Nevertheless, apparently she was willing to go right into town and to confess that Jesus had exposed her sinfulness. When she says, quote, he told me all that ever I did, she obviously is speaking with some hyperbole. But it is very highly likely that there was a great deal more to the conversation than John actually records. This conversation is actually very short, as we have it here in the gospel. The gospel writers always had to be selective. But here is the point. The fact that she is willing to publicly confess that she was a sinner exposed by the searing eyes of Jesus tells you that she did, in fact, finally embrace her sin. And once she embraced her sin, then she embraced the Messiah in spirit and in truth. And in turn, she became an evangelist for the Savior of the world And this, I believe, is the antidote for the prosperity gospel in our culture, especially among Christian nationalists. We need to just call people to repent of their sins and then to embrace Jesus as the Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this wonderful example that you have recorded for us and how your son deals with this woman of Samaria. And I pray, Lord, that all of us will be quick to confess our sins and to acknowledge our Christ. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.